The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Battle of Ruritania, Episode 8. Lieutenant Schmidt woke early, long before his wife and children. He had never slept soundly, and terrible dreams had shredded his slumber. He peeled himself out of bed, careful not to disturb the quilt. Gerta's soft snore reassured him, and he tiptoed into the hall. He dressed quickly, pausing only to steal a glance at his girls. They huddled together in their single bed, a mass of blonde pigtails and stuffed toys. With practiced stealth, he snuck out the door, down the long staircase to the street. Only his closest friends knew how much Heinrich Schmidt loved the city of Strelsau in winter. The brick avenues were already busy with workmen. Delivery wagons lined up on every curb. The air smelled refreshingly of horses and chimney smoke. The snow had been beaten down by scores of boots, but the slate rooftops above glistened white. Schmidt strode down the block, whistling as he went. The central square was busier still, and most shops had already opened. Pedestrians called to each other. Pigeons hopped and flapped. A church bell rang the hour. The plaza was packed with half-timbered buildings, the same apartments and storefronts Schmidt had passed his entire life. How he loved this place on a brisk morning, when the sun cast a bronze light over the trees and benches of Königsplatz. A bell tinkled as Schmidt stepped into his favorite bakery. He crouched before the glass case and browsed its many confections. Strudels and cakes and croissants were lined up in neat rows, flanked by boxes of truffles and bonbons. At last, he pointed to a plateful of macarons. He received a bright paper bag. The register chimed, the clerk smiled, and Schmidt was back in the street, heading homeward. He might have gone straight back to his building, Indeed, his life might have turned out differently had he not spotted the beggar on the sidewalk. The man wore a ragged green coat with all too familiar patches sewn into its sleeves. The man held a bowler hat in his hand, making plain his vanishing hair. His scraggly beard accented his sunken cheeks. One pant leg was empty, and he leaned against a weather-beaten crutch. Men passed in a wide arc, their eyes trained on the ground. The man was so weak, his pleading voice could barely be heard over the urban din. Schmidt crossed the street and approached the beggar. When the man saw the lieutenant, dressed in full uniform, he instinctively backed away. Panhandlers had been jailed before, and most of them knew it was better to sleep on cold cobblestone than risk a Ruritanian jail cell. But Schmidt only stopped, looked around, and drew a few coins from his pocket. Here you are, Corporal, he said. There's a cafe around the corner. 
They won't let you inside, but a cup of tea will do you good. The man melted. As tears dribbled over his cheeks, he raised a hand to his brow. Schmidt saluted back, and the two soldiers dropped their arms, turned, and marched in their separate directions. Schmidt climbed the stairs to his apartment. He reached the door and grasped the handle. But then he paused. A sound seeped into the corridor of a piano being played. The keystrokes were heavy and uncertain. Some notes were off. Every few measures, the player stopped, waited, and tried again. It was Hermina, his middle daughter. She was playing at the upright piano, just beyond this thin plaster wall. How long it had been since Heinrich Schmidt had stopped to listen to her practice. She had come so far in a year of private lessons. He knew the song so well, Das Tränenteherz, The Bleeding Heart, the national flower of Ruritania, his own favorite bloom, the flowers Schmidt used to pick for Goethe when they were still courting, the song he often hummed to himself when no one else was around to overhear. He stood there, listening, groping the paper bag, lost in his daydream. And all at once, he had no idea what to do next, whether to open the door, or stay, or leave the macarons on the doorstep and walk away, to begin his cryptic day. The snow dripped off his boots. The song ended. Schmidt heard the clapping of small hands, and all was quiet. It was early morning when the riders appeared. The clouds had parted and sunbeams burned through the tree branches. Fresh bluffs of snow twinkled in the early dawn. Only a handful of men were awake, shoveling snow out of the fire pits. There was no movement in the forest until two horses appeared in the distance. Hardly anyone had approached the camp in all these months, but the Zinti knew what to do. Visitors had come to them a thousand times before, in so many different lands, and for so many different reasons. Some came to buy and sell wares. Some came to have their fortunes read. Some were fellow travelers, in need of company. And others were policemen, vigilantes, mobs. This glen had been so quiet, nestled in the firs, a good distance from house or town. The last thing they hoped to see, after a fearsome blizzard, was a pair of riders galloping toward them. Still, they kept calm. The men formed a staggered line, crossing their arms. They held axes and shovels, tools they had been using, but which could also protect them. As the riders came closer, they were relieved to see that one was a woman. The horses drew to a stop. They were heavy brown stallions, and their legs and manes were powdered in snow. They breathed hard in the crisp air. 
The woman dismounted, then the man. They wore simple wool coats and hats, but their garments were clean and well-threaded. The man had a patrician nose and beady eyes, and he bowed his head to the line of Romani. Do you speak German? he said. The men glanced at each other, then nodded. My name is Varga Milos. I am a servant of the Baron von Brutzen. I have come here to warn you of an imminent threat to your camp. Pardon me, came a voice. The Zinti men parted, and old Bobbick came up behind. He hobbled slowly, his staff sinking into the snow. He was hatless, and his long silver hair drifted freely in the breeze. As he stopped, leaning against the wood, he said, Herr Varga, I am Babik, the eldest of this camp. I can speak for these men. Milos bowed again. I understand. I would ask, said old Babik, why your master is so interested in our affairs. Milos hesitated. He looked at the woman. The woman nodded. Then Milos said, The Baron von Brutzen has asked me to send you a message. He has long been a friend of many Romani, as have his colleagues, and he believes you may recognize its provenance. Yes? Eke terrarum. In an instant, old Bobbick changed. He straightened his shoulders, widened his eyes, and let his mouth hang open, revealing jagged teeth. The other Zinti men turned to each other, murmuring anxiously. They had never heard the ancient password. The Latin phrase meant nothing to them. But they could sense old Bobbick's excitement. He took a few steps forward, examining the man who had spoken those sacred words. Eke terrarum, he answered. How long it has been since I met a man from the Order of Seshat. So long I wondered if it still exists. And you, Herr Varga, you come from the Order of Seshat. Not I, said Milos. The lady. She has come all the way from America to stop the ones who would harm you. The woman cleared her throat. It was apparent from her blank expression that the woman did not speak German. But the word America caught her attention, and she seemed to know the subject had turned to her. She spoke, in English they assumed, meeting one pair of eyes after another. When she finished, Milos translated. She says that your lives are in danger. We believe that the Prince of Ruritania wishes you harm. If you stay here, there is no telling what could happen. The men murmured to each other again. The prince what is the order? Are they the ugly it's a German men girl spoke of. Don't listen to them. Old Babik raised a hand, and the men fell silent. The Baron is kind to warn us, he said. But we have nowhere to go. Not until the spring. We may go to Austria, perhaps to Budapest. For now, we must remain. The road is too long. 
The Baron has already considered this, said Milos, which is why he invites you to stay in his home, Castle Brutzen, until he can ensure your safety. Sandor awoke with a start. His eyes fluttered. He ripped the moist sheets from his body. Gasping, trembling, Sandor rolled off the mattress and thudded to the bearskin rug. Mein Herr, cried a servant, who raced into the room and rested hands on Sandor's naked torso. Let me help you. Sandor sputtered, but his lips were mush. He coughed up phlegm, which was the most he could expect from his vocal cords. He crawled across the dense fur, but his elbows buckled. He fell to his side, heaving for breath. The servant yelled commands at the open doorway, and Sandor heard the patter of feet. Elis! Elis! Sandor huffed in frustration. Servants emerged. Warm water was trickled into Sandor's mouth. He was set on the floor, leaning against the bed frame, his legs splayed outward. Soup was brought, and Sandor allowed himself to be spoon-fed. His eyes rolled drowsily, barely registering the crush of faces. Someone draped a robe over him, pulling his limp arms through the sleeves and tying the cloth belt around his waist. The sheen of sweat dried on his face. His guts were flooded with warmth. He hadn't felt hungry, but soon his belly felt comfortably full. The numbness retreated from his bloodstream, replaced with jittery life. I must, I must see Elizabeth, he stammered. Fräulein Crown, is she here? Sandor, came a voice, and Sandor looked up to see Rudolph. The servants parted, allowing the Baron to shimmy across the room and embrace his cousin. You are awake, thank heavens. Rudolph, I must see Elizabeth soon, said Rudolph. She is running an errand, but there is time for that. No, Sandor screeched. There is no time. The weapon, it is complete. We know, Rudolph said soothingly, and we believe we know what it is. The man Z, a hybrid of man and ape, that is what you saw, yes? Sandor let his head drop, an exhausted nod. It gave chase, he muttered. It, it killed O'Malley. Yes, Sandor, so we assumed. I, I let him die. Hush now, said Rudolph, kissing Sandor's forehead. We have the rest of our lives to regret our mistakes. Now you must rest. But they know we are here, Sandor wheezed. They must, and if so, they will come to us. We will be safe. This is a castle after all. Sandor shook his head. Rudolf, you did not see. The weapon, the creature, is a deadly thing. A soldier shot it with a rifle, point-blank range, and it kept moving. It did not slow down for an instant. Sandor stopped. He remembered the servants, still gathered around him. They glanced worriedly at each other. Sandor needed them to leave. 
He needed space to think, to consider. He needed Rudolph to tell him everything that had happened. He needed more food, more water. He needed proper clothes. And most of all, more than anything, he needed Elizabeth. Rudolph, he said, if the prince can strike us, then he shall strike. It is only a matter of time. We must prepare to fight back. We cannot waste another moment. You've been listening to The Battle of Ruritania, Episode 8, written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are produced by Airmail Media in beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. Music provided and licensed by audioblocks.com.